and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping today on Thursday, August 6th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. Alice Holstein of Politico. Good morning. And Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Happy to be here. So no interview this week, but more than enough news to go around. We will start with COVID because it is still the dominant story. On Capitol Hill, Republicans, Democrats, and Trump administration officials are still working on that next COVID relief bill, despite the fact that the extra $600 week in unemployment benefits expired last week with a whole host of other economic supports. I am not feeling a sense of urgency from the negotiators here, or am I missing something? It's terrible because people are really, I had a story in this week that said millions of people are now having their benefits cut or their payments are reduced by half at least. And a lot of them are reduced by 70% or more. And, you know, folks are still telling me that they just can't find jobs. We had another, uh, you know, over a million more people file for first time unemployment claims. Uh, today. We're going to get the jobs report tomorrow. There probably will be, the estimate are that there will be some jobs created. So we're not losing jobs at this point. But I mean, the economy is still very shaky. Alice, what are they doing? <laughs> Basically, just the small group of top um, people are negotiating with the Trump administration behind closed doors in these marathon sessions and then coming out and, you know, giving their side of things. But the, the rest of Congress is just waiting for them to strike some sort of deal. And it's telling that not even all of this national suffering that Tammy was describing can convince them to work on a Friday. They're leaving today <laughs> after <laughs> the Senate, that is. And then I saw this morning uh, Mitch McConnell bashed the House for already leaving, but the House passed its coronavirus relief bill months ago. So that's In sort May. of a misleading attack there. <laughs> so Mark Meadows said, I guess, yesterday, Wednesday, that if they didn't have a deal by Friday, they weren't going to get a deal. And I tweeted, so then what happens? Kim, what happens if they don't get a deal? Well, he sort of floated this idea of President Trump signing an executive order in order to do something to extend these unemployment benefits boost, as well as there was also a second piece that expired uh, recently that put a hold on eviction notices. And so they're trying to see whether there's some way that President Trump can act unilaterally for some sort of a deal. I'm not sure how all that comes together. And it also doesn't tackle a lot of the other stimulus provisions that the are in part of discussions right now, such as providing money so that schools can operate in the fall, whether it's virtually or in person, such as providing more money for testing and tracing. There's just a lot of other pieces that would need to come together in order to get the economy back in a good footing and in order to really get this virus under control. Right. And it also wouldn't include state and local funding, which is something that a lot of states and localities need, which they're, you know, they're saying that they're going to have to end up having huge budget cuts, including to like Medicaid providers and, and things like that. So it's going to really hurt the safety net within the states. Uh, but also one thing, Julie, that's close to your heart, I know that he's talking about suspending payroll taxes. <laughs> and so, you know, a hat tip to you, a story that I'm looking at for this week is if he actually does that, what will that do to Medicare and Social Security trust funds? Nothing good. No. <laughs> also, there, there seem I'm still 
sort of mystified by why the Republicans are, well, I guess the Republicans are not, why the administration is so intent on cutting the payroll tax, because that does not help anybody who's not on a payroll right now. And those are the people who kind of most need help, right? But the people on a payroll vote. That idea had so little Republican support in the Senate that it was not set to be included. But the president is still pushing it as something and floated it as something he could do through executive order when, again, that would not address the folks that are most in need right now. So let's talk about testing because we have to talk about testing. It seems every week Um, the administration still doesn't seem to have any kind of national plan for testing beyond continued claims that things are okay when clearly they are not. So a bipartisan group of six states led by Maryland Republican Larry Hogan, who's about to end his term as the head of the National Governors Association, uh, has banded together with the help of the Rockefeller Foundation to launch a program using antigen testing, which is much faster than the sort of traditional PCR testing, if slightly less accurate. Is this the future of testing? States basically getting together in their own sort of groups to try to to boost the market, which I guess is what these states say they're doing. Um, Does the market not already see the need? for more testing, to produce more tests? Right. But the benefit of states banding together is that they're not competing against one another and they have more purchasing power if they band together and can not pay exorbitant um, overpay that we saw earlier in the pandemic states paying way more than was necessary for things like masks because there was no sort of national or even regional um, effort to acquire them in in bulk and distribute them. And so this is an, an effort to have some more leverage on the state side, which makes sense. And I am hearing from a lot of public health experts that with the virus just spinning out of control in so much of the country, they are advocating for the wider use of these rapid, but slightly less accurate. But if we just have more and more and more testing and more frequent testing, even with the reduced accuracy, um, they think it would still make a big difference. I mean, are we ever going to get up to what, how, what is it? 300,000 tests a day? Is that what they're calling for? I'm trying to, I can't remember the number, but what whatever the number is that most public health experts are calling for, we are still way, way under that. And particularly in some of these, you know, hot spots. And when I say hot spot, I mean like the entire state of Texas and the entire state of Florida. Right. And part of the problem is that for the more accurate diagnostic tests, people are waiting for the results for over a week, which is just not feasible and makes contact tracing impossible. Um, And also people who are working can't afford to not work and sit at home for a whole week without pay waiting for their test result or more. I mean, we've heard stories of two weeks or more. So it's just not realistic to expect people to isolate for that entire time with no support services. Yeah, I got I got a test and it took 10 days. And that was in early July. Kimberly, you were saying things are better now, at least in DC. When I when, when I got a test, I got results within two days. And I had isolated that time, which turned out to be over the weekend. So that was easy. <laughs> Meanwhile, Alice, while the federal government isn't helping states much at the moment, the Trump administration is actively undercutting some efforts by scaling back National Guard help with testing and other COVID efforts. Uh, you've been following this. What's the latest? In a couple weeks, the federal funding and the federal deployment of the National Guard was set to expire. And so states, because they hadn't heard word about an extension earlier this week, started to demobilize because there's a whole demobilization process. And so they started to pull Guard troops off of the front lines where they were doing testing, contact tracing, distributing food to school kids, all kinds of necessary things. And then Monday night, after we wrote our story that... (laughs) 
that this demobilization was happening, the administration did authorize an extension, but two big caveats. One, they decided to cut the funding for almost every state by a quarter and say states now have to pick up that share of it, which many states and the National Guard Association told me is highly unusual. They can't remember a single previous time for a federal deployment that states were expected to take on part of the cost. Then we reported on (laughs) yesterday that the administration also carved out just Florida and Texas to continue receiving full funding, no other states. And they have not given an official explanation for this. Um, They put the memos out publicly and we asked them why did they get this special treatment. By several metrics, they are not the worst off, and there are many other states uh, that are hotspots and have a very high number of cases, a very high test positivity rate. And so we're continuing to dig into this, and I think that states are going to be pretty upset going forward. Although I will say Trump himself, who's been doing these solo briefings again at the at the dinner hour, has been pretty clear when he says he wants to help states who have been good to him. Um, I mean, he's just he's not mincing words, as you know, talk about saying the quiet part out loud. If the state is run by a governor that he likes, then the state will get good cooperation and help from the federal government. And if it is not, then they won't. I mean, and I just I've well, that's what's that's what's weird about this, even if it was purely political, which is obviously problematic, doling out (laughs) aid in the middle of a pandemic based on politics is obviously very problematic and potentially illegal. But Even if it was about that, you know, there are many, many other Republican governors and states that have been very friendly to this administration and are in high need. I mean, I'm thinking of Arizona in particular. Why didn't Arizona get this special treatment? They're having, you know, they're really struggling with their outbreak. Their governor is very pro-Trump. I mean, there's so many other states. So um, we really don't know why Florida and Texas alone out of everyone got this uh, extra funding. So I guess the short description of COVID this week is still not organized. All right. Well, for a change, we have a lot of non-COVID news, too. Let's start with that promise made by President Trump two weeks ago in that now famous Fox News interview with Chris Wallace. And I will quote here, he said, we are signing a health care plan within two weeks, a full and complete health care plan. Now, notwithstanding that generally a president signs bills um, that are sent in by Congress and there are no such bills or he signs executive orders, except he doesn't really have authority to do a full and complete health care plan by executive fiat. Um, but it's now more than two weeks later. We haven't seen such a plan. Tammy, this is your extra credit story this week. Uh, so why don't you tell us about it? Sure. So, yeah, the Washington Post has had a couple of stories in the last couple of days. Uh, so my extra credit is a piece that ran over the weekend saying Trump uh, keeps promising an overhaul of the nation's health care system that never arrives. And, you know, it's basically just saying that this this is not the first time that he's done this, you know, and, and in fact, the, the thing that I find most interesting that he's bringing this up again is that the administration has pretty much said uh, earlier this year, I think, or even the end of last year, that they were not going to come up with a comprehensive plan, that they were going to push, you know, separate things like lowering drug prices and improving kidney care and, you know, and all of that. So, you know, things that they've actually been doing right, to some extent. Right. And, you know, we also are at the same time as he's saying this, we're seeing all of the executive orders roll out with, you know, basically wrapping up all of the things in his attempt to lower drug prices, actually, none of which has actually happened. But he rolled out this four part executive order a few weeks ago. And now then he did the telehealth and rural health. 
you know, that seems to be their strategy for the election on health is that they're going to, you know, go for these individual efforts rather than a comprehensive, what, what should I say, a full and complete health care plan. But, you know, he's gone back to this. And uh, a follow-up story to the, my extra credit was interesting that ran this week that said that he has actually said this, that he would unveil and enact a plan no fewer than 15 times since November 2016, according to a Washington Post count. So, you know, we'll see how many more times that happens before November. Well, what was interesting is that they said, and I think it was last year, that they weren't going right. to unveil a plan until after the election. Oh. Not just that they weren't going to un- yes. put a plan together, but there was sort of this promise that if we get reelected, we'll get we'll tell you then what it is that we're going to do. Right. And that was in relation to the to the Texas ACA case when it looked like you know when they were fighting to actually bring down the plan. And, you know, then Trump at that time said, yes, we're going to you know bring it down in the courts and we're going to have a great plan. And McConnell was like, yeah, maybe not. And so they you know, then they announced that they were going to push it off until after the election. Meanwhile, I was I moderated a panel um uh, this week for Academy Health, and we had Lonnie Chen, who's a, uh, a health expert who who consults with Republicans, and he said he does think that they're going to put something out, but it'll most likely be by the end of August. It won't be something brand new, but it might try to sort of pull together all of these little things that he's been doing. That was his guess. I'm not. I'm not putting any money on anything because I feel like this the strategy for this campaign is sort of changing from day to day. Uh, but meanwhile, as, as you mentioned, Tammy Trump did use his executive authority on health care this week. He announced that earlier expansions of telehealth reimbursement for Medicare patients that were made on an emergency basis back when the pandemic first started and everything shut down. Uh, those will be extended. He also ordered a pilot project to help shore up the finances of rural hospitals. Not exactly a full overhaul of the health system, but useful, yes? The telehealth provisions could be a pretty big deal, especially if Congress were to enact fewer restrictions on telehealth. When I talk to a lot of business leaders in healthcare, they really say that the loosening of restrictions on telehealth has completely changed their business models. And they really think that it's something that is going to permanently change in healthcare. Um, just to kind of illustrate how it was, you know, pre-pandemic, if you were on Medicare and you lived in a rural area, you could access telehealth, but you'd have to go to a special site to actually do these visits. And so now during the pandemic, you can do those visits from home in the same way that you would, you know, if you're doing a Zoom call or something like that. And you, and doctors also were getting reimbursed just for visiting with patients over the phone. And so the use of telehealth went up a ton. And so what this executive order does is it directs federal agencies to look at who else could be able to use telehealth in Medicare and get reimbursed for that. So they're looking at things like mental health, occupational therapy, emergency room visits. And the reason why even just doing it in Medicare is influential is because then you have a lot of state regulators who are looking at whether to extend some of these provisions for private insurance. And then Congress also looking at it and saying, well, maybe we should, you know, have telehealth continue on a more permanent basis. And so um, this is something that could potentially be change healthcare a lot and also change how much we spend on healthcare. I think the sort of ideal that people have about it is that some of these virtual visits could replace in-person visits, which helps a lot with, you know, people not having to take time off work. But there's also concern that it could cost more. Let's say you do a virtual visit and the doctor says, oh, you have to come in anyway, then you bill for two visits. And so there's kind of that, those 
those different factors that they're weighing as they look at who to expand this to, how much to reimburse, and who should be allowed to participate. Yeah, I, I wrote about this earlier this spring, that there's a lot of analysts who are worried about basically turning on the spigot here for telehealth. It's not even just that, you know, they'll see you virtually and then want to see you in the office. It's that the barrier to a visit now goes down. It used to be the doctors sort of want to see, but, you know, maybe I can wait. But it's really easy to just log on from home. And if doctors are getting paid for that, that we're going to see, you know, generally, we, we know the rules of fee for service, you get the more you do, the more you get paid for. And if they're going to start paying for it, we're going to start seeing more of it. Of course, the solution to that is if more doctors were, you know, on some kind of capitated payment. Um, and so then it might be more efficient, and it might save money. But in a fee for service world, there's a lot of fear that this could, you know, start a really big inflationary spiral. Um, if you sort of take all the restrictions off of telehealth, I mean, one- true, but it can also help with chronic disease management better. And I'll tell you what happened with me recently, where in June, I was bit by my cat, uh, very hard on the foot, it really hurt. Uh, And I and I was toying, I was like, Oh, I don't want to go out, you know, it's the pandemic, it's early June. And so I called up my telehealth advisor. And they were like, you really pretty much need to go to the ER, uh, you know, right now. And I went and I ended up hospitalized for four days on IV antibiotics. And the doctors told me they put me on the IV right in the ER. And they were like, if you waited a lot longer, this would have been a lot more serious. And you know what, on a Sunday night, I was probably may have gone to urgent care, but the telehealth visit was very quick and probably in the end saved, even though my hospitalization was expensive, it would have been a lot more expensive with surgery or other things. So it does, it can help in certain cases. I think there is no question that telehealth is a great thing. It's just this sort of getting it right Mm -hmm. and not making it. It's It's like everything else in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. And I I interviewed administrator Seema Verma, who runs the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, about this. And she was just kind of telling me how she's weighing all these different factors. And one of the biggest feedbacks that she's gotten is that, especially in mental health, it's been really helpful because there's obviously a shortage of mental health providers in a lot of parts of this country, but especially in rural areas. And people also feel that there's less stigma if they're able to call or do a a visit virtually. And so um, at a time when a lot of people are very stressed out and struggling with, uh, you know, unemployment and fear about the virus, it's been a really helpful way for them to be able to use that service. And obviously, mental health is something where there's probably fewer trade-offs in terms of, you know, having the patient in front of you um, some. But all right, well, let us move on in other health news this week. Missouri became the sixth state where voters approved an expansion of Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act over the objections of Republican governors and or state legislatures. Uh, Pop quiz, what are the other five? Oklahoma was most recent. Right. And Maine, Nebraska. Utah. Utah. Yep. Idaho. Mm -hmm. That's it. Very good. I, I knew you guys would know. Sorry, we're talking over each other. <laughs> yes. For, for those of you who couldn't hear everybody, it's, it's Utah, Idaho, Oklahoma, Maine, and Nebraska. I would point out that whoever put together this ballot initiative in Missouri learned from past experience in other states by putting the expansion into the state's constitution. They may well have prevented some of the roadblocks erected by Republican lawmakers and governors in other states where voters approved expansion, things like adding work requirements or charging premiums. So now there are only 12 states left that have not expanded Medicaid, including some really big ones like Texas and Florida and Georgia. Um, what's the outlook for the rest of the states to expand? And is COVID affecting that? Well, it's not affecting those states' leaders 
and their opposition to expanding Medicaid. They've been asked repeatedly, you know, has the addition of millions of uninsured people in your state, you know, made you reconsider? And they've all said no. But I think that because it's never lost when put to the voters, not once... I think that's really telling, and I think it will encourage these ballot initiative efforts in other states. I know there was some efforts going on, begun already in Florida. I'm sure there are in other states as well. Um, So I think this will only add to that momentum. And the states we just listed are really red states. And so I think it just shows that while this is a partisan issue um, when it comes to elected officials' positions, it's a less partisan issue when it comes to the voting public. It's funny in Missouri, they you know the, the Republican governor made put the vote during the primary rather than the general election on the theory that more Republicans would would turn out in the primary. That obviously didn't work. But one of the things that I think is of concern to voting analysts is that it did pretty well in very Republican areas. Obviously, it carried because in the more Democratic areas, the the support was pretty overwhelming. But also in some of the more rural areas in Missouri, um, there were a lot of Republicans behind this. Is this this any kind of presage for the fall? Or is this something that in this time of COVID, voters are more concerned about health care? Yeah, I mean, I think you see that. And particularly, I mean, although, you know, we do say, yes, it passed in Missouri. And it did pass in Oklahoma, but very, very tightly in Oklahoma. So that was that was a nail biter there for them. Um, in the rural areas, there was a big push by the hospitals to say that, you know, Medicaid expansion will help rural hospitals. And in Missouri, 10 rural hospitals have closed since 2014 out of a total of 15 in the state. So that may have, you know, swayed some people both between getting healthcare in the rural hospital as well as the economic engine that a rural hospital is. So, you know, the chambers of commerce in Missouri actually supported this too, which is, you know, maybe surprising. And the administration and Republican lawmakers are going to have to push what they've been doing for healthcare and to expand healthcare access and coverage in the fall. Uh, and just to follow up on just what we had said before, the Fairness Project, which has been really backing a lot of these efforts, say that for 2022, they are definitely looking at Florida, but also interestingly, possibly Mississippi, Wyoming, and South Dakota. So those are the other states. But unfortunately, in certain states, and I don't know about Texas specifically, but it's not that easy to do ballot measures in every state. So they're picking, you know, these states very specifically for for a reason. And it may not work in the remaining 12. I think another factor is also how stingy or generous a state's um, traditional Medicaid program is. And in Missouri, it was extremely, extremely restricted. You had to be just absolutely abjectly poor and and have children uh, to be able to qualify. And so this will help more than 200,000 people now. It's anticipated. And so I also think that varies state to state and, and can determine the pressure to expand. Yeah, I, I, I tell this story a lot. But after Hurricane Katrina, I was on a conference call with the Louisiana Medicaid director. And she was saying that in order to qualify for Medicaid in Louisiana, if you were a parent, you were obviously not eligible if you weren't, you, you had to earn less than 50 15% of poverty to qualify. And somebody said 50, and she said, no, 15, one, five. That's how poor you have to be in some of these states to, to get on Medicaid, even if you're like, you know, a mom with kids. Right. But Texas has the, sorry, Texas has the highest un- uninsured rate and has a very stingy Medicaid program. So we'll see what happens there. 
I wanted to add as well, I think, to the conversation that I think one of the reasons that ballot measures are pretty popular, too, is because the healthcare industry is also very pro-expansion. Um, hospitals in Missouri spent $10 million on encouraging people to vote in favor of Medicaid expansion. And insurance companies, which contract with Medicaid uh, to administer the program, also are very much in favor of expansion. And I haven't really seen the sort of organized opposition that we saw during the Obama administration, you know, of groups that are actively putting out ads to encourage people to vote against expansion. Um, the one time that a ballot failed in terms of passing in a state was in Montana because they had already done expansion, but it was set to sunset. And they put a ballot measure before voters saying, we want to continue expansion, but we want to fund it through a tobacco tax. And it actually failed there. Um, now, the legislature did end up finding a way to pay for it, which is what a lot of states do is they actually tax um, health insurance companies companies and hospitals in order to pay for the expansion. But it just shows that if you have a lot of organizations that are really in favor of this, that there's more, I think, overall support and more likely that voters will get on board. All right. Well, we have two more two more items. So let's move on. It is earnings season. And to the surprise of many who've been listening to the woe is me stories from healthcare companies, it turns out most of them are doing just fine. Thank you very much. Health insurance companies, drug companies, investor-owned hospitals are all reporting healthy profits despite some shutdowns early in the pandemic. Um, have they been crying wolf or is the experience of various health industry players really been that disparate? Well, I mean, I think you we knew that the insurers were going to be doing well because nobody was going to the doctor during the shutdowns and they were not having, this is what the hospitals were complaining about, that they were not having the elective so-called elective procedures, which are much more lucrative than the COVID treatment. But what the insurers were saying is, is yes, okay, maybe our first and maybe our second quarter earnings are going to look good because of, you know, this COVID shutdowns. But just wait until all this pent up demand comes out later in the year. So, you know, don't don't look at us as so flush right now, whether, you know, we'll see what happens. But obviously, It'll also depend a lot on the, how the pandemic plays out, but that's what they're saying. I was surprised about the hospitals because they've really been crying poor. And laying people off in the middle of a pandemic, laying lots of people off because people, you know, weren't going in for those uh, elective procedures and, you know, normal preventative stuff. So it is surprising. But all of this just also highlights once again how insane our healthcare system is that these different pieces of our healthcare system have, in many cases, you know, competing interests and are operating sort of at cross purposes or something that benefits one harms the other. And, you know, we see this in the surprise billing fight. We see this in so many areas, but it, it just never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, I have to say it. Tammy's right. We, we knew that the insurers were going to do well because of the sort of, you know, the drop in demand for all care except COVID care, basically. But I was also surprised by the hospital. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised by the drug industry. Um, um, medical device makers apparently aren't doing well. I assume somebody, you know, the people who are making the COVID sort of tests and adjunct things are doing okay. Question is sort of how well can we sustain a healthcare system that is in large part dependent on profit making entities? Right. I feel bad for dentists. I think they're really <laughs> suffering. My dentist is, and yeah. I feel bad for him. Yes, I also feel bad. Yeah, that is a big problem, actually. And dentists, dentists who gave up all their PPE when there was a shortage and now 
now that they're allowed to reopen, can't get enough PPE in order to reopen. So it is, it is, we will watch that space. Um, finally, this week, uh, way back in the before times, in this case, in June of 2019, the Trump administration put some serious restrictions on the use by federally funded scientists of fetal tissue from elective abortions, something I would add, because I covered it, that was approved by large bipartisan majorities of the House and Senate back in the early 1990s. Uh, the new rules bar the use of tissue by in-house House federal scientists for outside scientists with NIH grants, research projects would have to be approved by an ethics advisory board. Well, last week that board was finally named, and surprise, it's like a who's who of anti-abortion activists. Now researchers say this ban is blocking work on, among other things, coronavirus treatments. Um, is there any chance any of this research is going to be able to go forward? I mean, Alice, were you at all surprised? I will say that earlier in, in this fetal tissue fight, which which stretches back decades, I mean, way before the 1990s, uh, there was also supposed to be an ethics advisory board to look at the ethics of all of this research, and they were never able to actually convene a board. So at least the Trump administration has done something prior administrations couldn't do, which is get people in a room to consider this. Right. I mean, it's not surprising, uh, given the ideological underpinnings of many folks in the Trump administration when it comes to the abortion issue. They have a long and very open track record of opposing this and opposing this fetal tissue issue specifically. So I I think this has really gone under the radar and it's something worth paying attention to, specifically, as you said, because this directly ties into work on coronavirus vaccines and therapeutics. All right. Well, another space that we will watch. Um, That is the news for this week. But before we get to our extra credits, I want to update something we talked about last week, that $765 million federal loan to Kodak for it to start making prescription drug ingredients. This week, the Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating how the company got the loan and why the company's stock soared more than 2,000% before the official announcement. So we will continue to watch that space as well. So it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Tammy, you've done your extra credit already. Kim, why don't you go next? Sure. My extra credit is from Apoorva Mandavili at the New York Times. It's titled, The Biggest Monster is Spreading and It's Not the Coronavirus. Um, The story explores how shutdowns, particularly across parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, are setting us back in the global fight against HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis. Um, Just a few of the alarming statistics that um, was mentioned in the story. Uh, Apparently about 80% of tuberculosis, HIV, and malaria programs worldwide have reported disruptions in service. And so it just goes to show that as we address this crisis of the coronavirus pandemic, all the different uh, flare-ups of um, infectious disease that we risk um, not being able to get a hold of around the world. All still continue. Alice, you have my second favorite story of the week. <laughs> yes, uh, I have the epic uh, opus in The Atlantic by Ed Young, and it is titled How the Pandemic Defeated America. So it walks through a lot of things that we all knew very well, laying out a timeline of all of the failures um, that allowed the virus to spread so widely in the U.S., um, from underfunded public health to um, the insufficient testing in the 
the beginning. Um, it explains why the travel ban did not stop the virus from coming here. It was already here and there were exceptions and it could have pulled focus away from doing other things that could have helped more, etc. Um, it goes into why nursing homes were so vulnerable. It goes into many, many things, um, but it lays it all out very well. I saw a lot of people sharing it. I think that, you know, all of us are so in the day-to-day -day weeds on this that I, I really saw with folks uh, who are not in journalism or politics really sharing this a lot. It really struck me that, you know, there there is an appetite for something that really pulls it all together in this way. And it also brought up um, a lot of really smart points that I hadn't thought about a lot in how it relates to the virus. They, he talked about how climate change and the destruction of wildlife habitats has made the transmission of viruses from animals to humans much worse and much more frequent and much more likely. And that was a good point that I really haven't seen explored very much. And he also talked about how building design in the U.S. just turned every conference room and office building into these super spreader <laughs> environments. And so thinking about how we design buildings for energy efficiency, but that means they have no ventilation. And just, just thinking of all of these sort of bigger structural forces that all combined to create the mess we're in. Yeah, I heard Tony Fauci yesterday and one of his many appearances saying, you know, schools should really open the windows. And I'm like, how many schools even have windows that open anymore? So my story is a piece that if you haven't already read, you really need to. It's in Vanity Fair by Catherine Eben, and it's called How Jared Kushner's Secret Testing Plan Went Poof into Thin Air. And it's about how Jared Kushner was allegedly ready with a team of mostly investment bankers and business professionals to try to launch a nationwide testing plan. You know, that thing that we don't have. Uh, except by the time they got the plan together, White House officials had decided that because it was mostly blue states that were getting hit the hardest, they would just let the states handle things. And as Ed Young pointed out so well, we all know how that worked out. So on that somber note, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay even when we are all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Kim? At Leonard KL. Tammy? At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. Alice. At Alice Olstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.